Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. At last I have it, the egg of the Lesser Samoan nut-scratching peewee, the only one of its kind. The bird is extinct. I alone, among the members of the secret evil millionaire's egg-collecting society, possess this one remaining egg. <laughs> I think I will open the refrigerator and gloat on my precious one more time. Where, where is it? It's not where I left it. Greg? Sup, Rumi? Where? Is my egg? Dude, I offered you some. Remember when I knocked on your highly fortified secret door? I was in the middle of something. I pulled the heart out of an ostrich and showed it to him as he fell over dead. Dude, I was trying to tell you I was making my famous cream cheese and chive egg scramble and did you want some? That egg was awesome, by the way. Greg, I told you not to touch my stuff. Like, in the refrigerator, if I write Kion in big letters on something, doesn't that tell you that it's mine so don't eat it? Dude, it was just an egg. No, it totally wasn't. It was extremely rare, and two of my assistants died scaling a craggy cliff face to reach the isolated nest of the Lesser Samoan nut-scratching peewee. I also used up your hot sauce. Uh, That was Golden Eagle blood. I am so bummed right now. You'll have to listen to this show to understand the plight of a wealthy, diabolical, obsessive egg collector like me. And now he's mad because they stopped making emu egos. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, remember those uh, the Eggo waffles? And they came uh, in an emu flavor. That's actually not true. But most of what we're going to tell you today, I would say 99% of what we're going to tell you today about eggs is true. And I do want to say, first of all, that we're live here in the afternoon, and we have three different segments. So if we're talking about something in one segment that interests you, and you want to say something about it, you should call immediately at 860-275-7266. And here's how the segments are going to go. We're going to begin with a conversation about eggs that you can eat that are not chicken eggs, which has always kind of fascinated me. And we'll get into that. Uh, and uh, then in the second segment, we're going to talk about this obsessive, um, eccentric underworld of egg collectors who collect eggs that they're not supposed to collect, eggs from birds living in the wild who are in some cases perched on the brink of extinction, in some cases may have been driven to extinction by these egg collectors. This especially seems to be a mania in Great Britain, uh, so we'll tell you all about that. And it really is um, both hilarious and disturbing. Uh, and I mean, these people, and actually, I mean, they do risk, as the interest suggested, their physical safety and prison time in order to collect eggs that they have no business owning. And then uh, lastly, you may have been aware of this over the last week or so, it's a piece of scientific research that kind of went viral, the story of a scientist who figured out how to unboil a boiled egg. That is, how to take a, a, a boiled egg whose proteins have become essentially solid, stuck together, and unstick them, reliquify them, which is more than just a parlor trick. It may have uh, pretty significant in, uh, implications for uh, cancer research. But as I said, we're going to begin talking about 
about eggs that you can eat that do not come from chickens. Uh, to help us do that is Woozy Wickfors, who is the owner of The Walking Wood and the mother of many barnyard pets. Uh, we'll tell you, by the way, if you go to WNPR.org and check out the Colin McEnroe Show website, uh, we will tell you how to even pre-order some eggs, some of the eggs that we'll be talking about here. And assuming he picks up his phone and or we find him, uh, adding to the conversation as we go will be Tyler Anderson, chef owner of Millwright's Restaurant in Simsbury. So, but Woozy Wick, Woozy Wick we're going to begin with you, and we're going to talk about how your story begins. So it began, I believe, with the acquisition of a rooster. So not, not, not an egg problem right there. <laughs> but, but then came the emu. So, so tell us how it is that you came to own an emu. Um, it was a gift for my 50th birthday. <clears throat> Two emus. <clears throat> and that's not a gift that most people would be given. How did anybody... How did the givers know that you would be a happy recipient of such a thing? Well, I'm not sure I was a happy recipient at that point. Um, I worked at uh, DEP, what was then DEP, now it's DEEP, mm-hmm. um, and some conservationists were aware of some emus that were looking for a home. And they thought, hmm, this is something she's never been given before. Now, I'm afraid of emus. I mean, they, when I look at them, I'm not afraid of very many animals, but I, they, look, they seem to be full of malevolence. Uh, oh. Like they hate me and they want to kill me. But apparently that's not the case. Well, they do. They, they're tall enough that they can look you right directly in the face, and they will look right inside you. Mm-hmm. Um, their eyes are... Yeah, they could give you the willies, I guess. Yeah. But... I don't think there's cause to be afraid of them. I mean, you've achieved a, a loving relationship with them? Yes. Um, well, then I'll, I'll take your word for it. But let's talk about the eggs. Now, the eggs are huge, right? They're about 10 times the size of a chicken egg? Yep. And yes, so, they are. Under they what look circum- like an oversized avocado or a Nerf ball. <laughs> so under what circumstances do you, do you eat them? I mean, you'd have to be making breakfast for a lot of people or something. Well, since it's just my husband and I, I got pretty tricky, and I made crustless quiche or, or frittatas, I guess, um, and I made them in muffin tins, and that way I could stick them in the freezer and just pop them out for lunch when we wanted them. What does an emu egg taste like? Nothing. Nothing? It tastes like bland. nothing? Bland. Very, very bland. Huh. But it's viscous, and it, it souffles up when you cook it, so it's a wonderful carrier for whatever flavor you want to add to it. And, and are, are there, in fact, are there restaurateurs who are interested in getting your emu eggs to serve I've to them? I've had some ask, but no, really nobody's ever followed through. And I'm sure that's in part because it's expensive. Right. How much is it? How expensive is it? Um, generally speaking, this is retail. I ask for $40 for the entire egg, fresh oh, eating egg. Yeah, for one egg. So, although if you think about it, you know, as being 10 times the size of a chicken egg, it's it's a little well, bit better deal than it sounds like. If you're going to go out to brunch yeah. or stay home and have something special. Right. In other words, if you if you had a bunch of people over and made them an emu omelet or frittata or something like that, which gather, based on what you're saying, uh, Woozy, you, know, you would have to flavor that up a little bit to have it be exciting oh. for people. But it would be implicitly exciting for a certain kind of company, right? I can easily get two um, good-sized quiche out of one emu egg. Yeah. 
So on that basis, it's a deal, right? You, you don't spend a lot of money on brunch. You stay home and eat an emu egg. So now there are other eggs that you now um, cultivate or, or ranch or, or whatever one does with eggs. That tell- my girls give me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so tell us about these other birds and their eggs. What else have you got there? Well, the other end of the spectrum would be the quail. Mm-hmm. Um, there it would take about 10 quail eggs to make one egg, yeah. <laughs> one chicken egg. Um, I have several kinds of quail, and I'm I'm going back to the basic brown quail, the Japanese Coturnix. Good, hardy bird. They're friendly. They're not flighty, um, and good layers. And, uh, popular, popular yeah. with the restaurants. Um, yeah, no quail eggs. We, we do see quail eggs in, in a whole bunch of different uh, cuisines. Um, let me before we get to the other birds. Let me ask you this before I forget: Are, are is are all the birds reasonably? cooperative about parting with their eggs? I mean, I, I once again, not to emphasize the, the emu as in any way uh, malevolent, but um, I just would be hesitant about taking an emu I, egg. I have heard permission. that emus are horribly protective. Mm-hmm. That's not the case with mine. I'm, I'm, maybe I got lucky or it's just how they are with me. In fact, he'll, he'll show me where they buried the egg, where they've hit it. Well, that's an interesting thing. You say he, and that's an important thing about emus, too, that the, the male does more of the egg sitting. Do I have that right? The male does all of the egg sitting. Unlike mm-hmm. some of the other ratites, ostriches and rheas, um, emus pair off. Yeah. And she's the one that selects the mate, and he's the one that rears the eggs. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's like, um, you know, um, stay-at-home dad, basically. Yeah. Yeah. He sits there for 56 days until the eggs hatch, and hopefully she'll bring him dinner now and again. So so we've got the um, the quail, we've got the emu. Now, you've also done d- duck and pheasant. And I know duck eggs I actually cook with with, with some regularity, and, and I'm, I'm familiar with those. I'm surprised that more people don't use them. I mean, they're kind of a little bit richer tasting, and I think they probably have more so cholesterol. I think so, too. And so many people think they're only for baking, that you don't eat them and. We disagree. Yeah, no, I, I use them in, in dishes other than baked dishes. Tell, tell me about pheasant eggs. That's a relatively new thing for you? Brand new for me, yeah. yes. This will be the first year that uh, my pheasants are old enough to give me eggs. The only pheasant eggs I've had have gone into the incubator, so I can't tell you how they taste. All right, so um, we're going to add to the conversation Tyler Anderson, the chef and owner of Millwright's Restaurant in Simsbury. Um, he does cook with these eggs. He may be interested in uh, buying one of Woozy's uh, emu eggs. We'll see he about might know that. How pheasant eggs taste? Yeah, so and he may know how pheasant egg, eggs taste. So uh, Tyler Anderson, give us a sense uh, of the range of eggs that you cook with. Hi, how are you today? Just fine. Good. Well, we sort of the eggs are like everything else that we cook with. It's sort of like whatever comes to our back door to say, um, is what we use in our, on our menu. So we've used, you know, we use tons of duck eggs. Actually, um, there's a hairdresser in Simsbury who raises ducks, and we buy our duck eggs from him. Um, and we use quail eggs quite a bit. What I like to really use is I like to use different size chicken eggs. So there's a, there's a chicken egg. When a chicken is a, a certain age, it's called a bantam egg, and the yolks actually weighs more than the white in the chicken egg. So we like to use chicken eggs at that time in their life. Um, you know, so we use, we're willing to use any egg pretty much. Are there, I mean, you know, Woozy's been talking about uh, quail and, and, and emu and, and their various properties. As a chef, uh, are there various properties in these eggs that you're, you're interested in? Yeah, we're looking for yolk. I mean, we, 
we want the richness, we want uh, the fat, we want the flavor. So we we love uh, a bright, bright yellow large yolk. So that's that's where you know baking with duck eggs is is great because it allows you to get such a great richness into uh, whatever you're using it in because the egg is so fatty and uh, the yolk is so bright and large. So Woozy's uh, uh, pretty much ready to harvest some pheasant eggs, but she doesn't have a sense yet of how they taste. Uh, do you have any information on that? Have you have you done the pheasant thing yet? No, I don't. But you can sort of tell you can sort of tell what kind of egg you can expect by the type of bird it is. Yeah. So you know, a duck is going to have a fattier egg than say a, a chicken or a quail. So pheasant being maybe a bird that's a little leaner. I would assume that maybe the egg is a little leaner as well, but I've never used them before. I'd love to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I just want to go back to uh, to Woozy for a second here. Woozy, so who, who are your customers? Are they um, people who are just, I mean, how do people become curious enough about a, a different kind of egg to maybe want to buy an emu egg or uh, a duck egg or a, a quail or a pheasant? I mean, who, who who gets interested in this stuff? Well, for years and years, I did farmer's markets. In fact, last summer was the first time I didn't. And I may go back to it this year. Um, and that's that's where you get to talk to the people directly. And you can drive up the curiosity factor quite a bit. We've got a big basket of emu eggshells, and they go, huh, what's that? <laughs> Dinosaur eggs. And and Tyler um, Anderson, one of the th- one of the ch- changes that that farmers markets have wrought, I think, for um, you know, you talked at the beginning about just uh, different kinds of chicken eggs and different kinds of sizes too. Mm-hmm. And so most of us grew up with either the white egg or the brown egg. You go to farmers markets, and there are these aracuna eggs, which are this beautiful blue. And I mean, there's this huge range of colors. And and people who do a lot of backyard chicken stuff have just shown me uh, or given me eggs. These it looks like a Sherwin Williams paint palette right. or something. It just it's amazing exactly. how many different colors that they turn in turn into. Does, is that interesting to the chef? I mean, what do you care what the shell of the egg looks like? No, we don't care. I mean, it's it's cute, you know, and it it looks nice. And you know, for the most part, like if those colored eggs really do mean that you're going to get a a very well raised chicken. So it's not it's not a chicken that's been forced to lay. It's a chicken that has taken its time and built up the minerals in in its in its uh, egg laying process. Um, and so you know you're going to get a good egg, but at the end of the day, our guests don't see that shell, you know, so uh, they're tasting the egg. So, you know, it, it does matter because, like I said, 90, 90% of the time it does mean that it's a, it's a really good egg and that it's been, uh, it's, a, it's been an animal that's been cared for, but the color of the egg doesn't really matter per se. Although, uh, I think Tyler's yeah. exactly right that yeah. the, the egg flavor comes from what the chicken has been eating. Um, yeah. I have several chefs that put at brunch put out a big bowl of the blown eggshells mm-hmm. to show the different colors. And again, it's just a way to get the conversation started. And, and yeah, uh, Woozy, you actually have found other uses for eggshells. Don't you make earrings out of the... Oh, I do, yes. Uh, quite <laughs> in my spare time. Quite a bit of crafty stuff. The quail eggs, I, I have made a number of different styles of earrings. The all-white quail eggs I'll decorate um, like miniature Easter eggs. I do the the Ukrainian psanky. Mm-hmm. Um, the emu eggs are interesting because it's such a thick shell. It's very, very dark green on the outside, pure white on the inside, 
and it goes through a teal color, so it can be carved like a cameo. Wow. Um, and, and Tyler Anderson, um, I assume that you have uh, at least sometimes cooked with some of these larger uh, bird eggs, like ostrich and, and emu. Oh, yeah. I, you've got emus right down the road from you at, at Flamig Farm. I don't know how many eggs they actually produce. but So, to, so tell us about, as a chef, what those eggs are like. Well, you know, again, those, those eggs are, are, are nice because there's a certain richness to them. Uh, but, but to us, they're sort of a novelty. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the flavor... The nuances of the flavor between, say, a duck egg, an emu egg, and an ostrich egg, you're never really going to realize. Uh, it's just a fatty yolk to a fatty yolk to a fatty yolk. Uh, but, you know, it's fun. Like, I've made hollandaise from ostrich eggs and emu eggs and stuff like that. And it's really fun, and it does turn out a great product. But, you know, to me, when it comes down to the intricacies of flavor, it's, it's a little bit more about... Um, uh, maybe being a novelty than it is uh, actually, you know, being able to nail like a duck to emo to an ostrich egg. So, and, and Tyler mentioned before about the richness of the yolk mm-hmm. and how it can develop that almost orange color, depending on what the, the bird is feeding. This is where emus, and I don't know that much about ostriches, but this is where emus are dinosaurs. It doesn't matter what they eat. That yolk is going to stay a pale buff color. It's not going to change color. And I think that's part of why it doesn't have the robust flavor that you might expect from a great big green egg. Um, I, I am now, you've got me uh, dying to try an emu egg, particularly the idea of, of eating something. I don't want you to die. Well, dying is was the wrong word. but um, Longing. Longing, yes, pining. I mean, first of all, the idea of eating something that's that close to being a dinosaur egg is uh, is kind of exciting. Um, Tyler Anderson, you, you when we first uh, uh, started talking, you used the phrase kind of whatever walks up to the door, and I assume that doesn't mean ostriches and emus are walking up to your door and volunteering <laughs> right. their offspring to you. But do people kind of, um, do they, I don't know, do they come forward? Are they contacting you and saying, I've got some, I've got quail, I've got this, I've got that? Yeah, I mean, the... Um you know, the longer the longer you're in one space and and you have your restaurant in one location and you kind of put it out there that you're you're a cook who's willing to work with unique products. It seems like the more unique products come to your back door, and you know, I say come to your back door, and I don't want anybody to like be lining up at our back door, please. Right. But you know, people call us and say, hey, I have you know, I have thirty ducks and I have all these eggs and I don't know what to do with them. Would you be interested in taking them? And you know, many times we're like, absolutely, but. You know, it's it's not just for eggs; it's for many other things. Um, but you know, eggs are one of those things that uh, we do have the luxury of working with a wide variety of at some points in the year. And and I, I, of course, a lot of it has to do with having a reliable supply and enough of them. And so, Woozy, give give us a sense. You have one laying emu, uh, and my understanding is I think it's winter and spring is the, the sort of the egg producing time. How many eggs do you get out of? Uh, of your emu, whatever her name well, may be. Well, when, when Stella and Monk were a little bit younger, they would start laying in October, and they would lay about one egg every three days um, all through the winter and into the spring, even into June. So I might, on a really good year, get 30 eggs. Um, I have more than just the two now, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether jostling for space or what, but I did change feed, and that might be it. I'm not getting eggs yet, and I'm a little bit panicked because, I mean, Stella and Monk are 19 years old. They should be at the prime of their life. Um, 
Well, we I'm share sure. we share your concern. Uh, thank, you, <laughs> thank you. Thank both of you uh, so much for spending some time talking to us about eggs. We have to stop now or we will be arrested by agents of the food schmooze who are circling around outside saying, this sounds very much like a conversation we might be having. We're going to come back and talk about the darkish netherworld of exotic and illegal egg collectors. Scrambled in the morning, you like your sunny side up. I like my scrambled in the morning, you like your sunny side up. I like my scrambled in the morning, you like your sunny side up. I like my scrambled in the morning, you like your you know, uh, first of all, I should say that this the, the idea to do a show about eggs came from Betsy Kaplan. Uh, and the minute she said it, uh, I said, yes, yes, we want to do a show about eggs. We didn't really know what we meant by that. And then she found this article. It really is sort of the perfect New Yorker article. I mean, it has everything. It's, it is, as I said before, both funny and very disturbing. Uh, it has just amazing details. And, and it's about a subculture that's a very strong subculture that you've just never heard of. You were unaware that it existed. At least I was. So joining us now is the author of that article, uh, Julian Rubenstein. Is it Rubenstein or Steen? Or Rubenstein, yeah. Rubenstein, all right. Uh, Julian Rubenstein, uh, an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Rolling Stone. He's also the author of The Ballad of the Whiskey Robber and is currently working on a documentary called The Holly. So um, this world that you uncovered, uh, you uncovered it uh, uh, almost exclusively in in England, this world of, uh, in some cases, very wealthy and and in a few other cases, uh, people who are just scraping by, uh, but but uh, obsessively collecting wild bird eggs by the thousands uh, and risking their safety and risking prison time in the process. First of all, is it a uniquely English or British phenomenon? Is is there a parallel anywhere else? Uh, Well, surprisingly, or or perhaps not for some who are, you know, more familiar with some of the oddities of the Brits, um, it is a relatively uh, uh, oriented toward uh, British men. Yeah. English men, even more specifically. Um, and uh, there are uh, reports um, on much smaller levels around the world of um, some uh, stealing of eggs and, in fact, selling them on a black market, which is, by the way, not what I was encountering there. Uh, there's not a lot of that, though, because it is very difficult to do so without getting caught. And so there's not a lot of it going on. But so, yes, on the whole, it's primarily uh, located there in the U.K., what I what I discovered. Now, most of what we're going to talk about involves the activities of these men who are out there in the wild, essentially raiding nests, stealing these eggs. How you were able to write this entire article and not use the word poach uh, is uh, beyond me. But um, uh, but I was impressed by it. Uh, but, but this this uh, but uh, so that's the main means of this. But you do allude early in the article to another kind of egg thief when you visit this museum. Um, at a, I think it's called the Tring, uh, where, in fact, you yourself are, were subjected to intense scrutiny. Your your passport is photographed and kept on file for five years, and you're 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 padded down like you're you know you're going into some maximum security facility. And, and a lot of this is because a, a, a man named Mervyn Shorthouse. Uh, well, you 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 t- you you tell them what Mervyn Shorthouse did. Yeah. Well, so I mean, like you said, sort of at the beginning. I mean, all of it is. Um it is such a sort of, it was an invisible world to me. And I found out even, I mean, a lot of Brits were aware of it, not necessarily that it's going on on this uh, level. And certainly I came to it from uh, more of a perspective of first discovering that there was this level of crime going on and then encountering this whole sort of invisible world and the other invisible worlds I've been 
used to delving into were, were, were wholly unlike this. So I didn't really have a lot of sort of, you know, environmental or, or ornithological background <laughs> coming into this. But I discovered that, um, uh, for example, at Tring, which is this uh, museum uh, about an hour north of, of London, uh, which does have the largest egg collection in the world, and it started getting its eggs, in fact, primarily from uh, people such as Walter Rothschild, who uh, back uh, in the uh, sort of early to mid-1900s had the largest, uh, like one of the largest collection of all animal species, and after his death had, in fact, many Two, some 200 species named after him, including a worm. <laughs> but he was obsessed <laughs> with eggs, uh, as was a man named Mervyn Shorthouse, who actually would visit the train so often that he was on very friendly terms with the people there and had invented an injury that put him in a wheelchair and enabled him over the course of three years to steal 10,000 eggs out of this facility, which was... I think the primary reason that they afterward instituted a huge number of um, uh, of security precautions. And interestingly, here you have a museum famous worldwide for its collection of eggs, yet you can visit any part of the museum except the egg collection unless you have special permission, which, which I was able to get and then still went through this whole uh, rigmarole to get in. Yeah, it, it it also seems like having lost 10,000 eggs in a 3-year period to a fake wheelchair-bound invalid, you know, it's 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 okay so they won't get fooled again as the who said, but it's a little bit but like locking the chicken coop after the chickens have escaped. Um uh, well now, but this this you know, that's the aberration, the the norm if this could be called a norm, it involves men who go out in the wild and they do they steal eggs right out of nests. And and a lot of them belong to something called the Jordan Society, which really does seem to fit like almost our sort of movie generated um, um, motif of, you know, this society of hooded figures, these wealthy men who have this bizarre obsession. Right. Many of these are, are men of great means who have just been gripped by this need to, to get as many different eggs as they can. Tell us about the Jordan Society. Yeah, so this the Jordan Society is really a way to start to, start to see the roots of what is an obsession for um, a lot of Englishmen, uh, or rather some, but you know some few that we're speaking of here who've made a name for themselves. Um, the Jordan Society started out in the uh, earlier 1900s when, uh, in as it was either the Ornithological Union or 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 the Oological Society. These two little groups had a basically a standoff, in fact, over whether or not they felt it was okay to uh, take bird eggs. And this was also at a time when the Audubon Society was first uh, coming into its own and Teddy Roosevelt was working with them and these environmental groups were gaining a lot of power at the time in terms of their understanding of, of how things were working and what dangers there were to species. Um, but uh, there was a guy, Charles Francis Robert Jourdain, a very esteemed Oxford-educated uh, ornithologist, who, um, after his death, the uh, union that he was uh, heading up took on his name. And it was, in fact, stocked primarily with similarly educated white Englishmen who were naturalists, basically. And, and, and also, egg collecting really is sort of a cousin, I would say, of... Um, of bird watching in that unlike Mervyn Shorthouse, what these guys really are 
excited by is not only collecting these things, but also the sort of the thrill of the chase and of finding these eggs. And so they're they're kind of like they actually kind of feel they're even better than bird watchers because they actually have to go so far as get to the nest and get the eggs, which requires all kinds of understanding of, of course, where they are, but also the breeding habits and, and, and even when um, they can approach these nests because the, the females, if they're guarding the nest, are very, uh, are, are very aggressive. So um, it, it, they, they basically made this into, as the uh, laws were changing, um, and they started changing in about 1954, and there was another big change in 81, but it basically, the laws in the UK, and this was somewhere around the world, there were laws starting to be implemented that you couldn't take wild bird eggs. So these guys were sort of forced to become more and more clandestine in their meetings and their gatherings, and they actually literally were resorting at one point to communicating by coded letter. There was a fantastic incident in 1994 where their real rival on the law enforcement side, an organization called the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which is one of the most uh, powerful and biggest uh, protectionist groups in the world, with over a million members, um, they uh, they they actually were were usually tapping these meetings and following them, and they they did a whole sting in 1994 where uh, they had uh, planted some actual uh, uh, employees posing as just women at a bar who were chatting these guys up before the meeting in this hotel and. And uh, were able to go in and, and, and actually raid the meeting and arrested the whole place. And then in the following week, there was this countrywide uh, bust resulting in tens of thousands of eggs and all these arrests. And from that point on, the Jordan Society really was had gone had taken a huge fall from kind of being you know what they felt the the cream of the crop of you know naturalists to on the run from the law, communicating by code letters, code, code numbers in their letters. And I mean, one would only go recently, uh, there was one who only did an interview if his voice was disguised. Uh, they, they really, so they were not easy to convince to speak to me. And I, it took a while to, to find some of them, but I did, I did end up getting, getting to a number of them. Yeah. There are these hilarious letters that, um, Seem like either something out of James Bond or Get Smart. I'm not sure which. In which fifteen <laughs> writes a letter to eighty three. They only they have only numbers. And 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 so I mean just to sort of uh, backtrack to something that you uh, you said earlier on. Um, I mean th- this there's a, there is something intrepid. I mean it might be disgusting, alarming, uh, and 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 in some cases may have driven entire species to extinction. This weird hobby, but there is something intrepid about these people. I mean Jordan himself, I think, uh, uh, slid down a, a cliff trying to get to a nest and and was badly scarred by it or something and and another yeah. one Colin Watson I think his name was uh yeah. died falling out of a tree uh yeah. where he was trying to reach down and, and get into a nest I mean you you can get hurt doing this oh my god absolutely I mean these guys are actually pretty tough and that is and 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 it's it's just like in like rock climbing or ice climbing these things where guys have different reputations there were I was finding out, like, you know, this guy, he's a famously great nest finder or, you know, like, so he was a great at orienteering and they would think very extraordinarily kind of detail oriented with their notebooks about tracking things. And then other guys who were actually great climbers. I mean, that was so, yeah, you have a real um, variety of skills that are needed here. 
And yeah, the guy you mentioned, Colin Watson, one of the most uh, infamous and uh, reviled egg collectors in, in England, ultimately died uh, climbing a tree to reach an eagle's nest. And a, a, a great headline, I thought, after his death in the, in the Daily Mail was, Nest in Peace. <laughs> um, so they, these, these guys have also you know, engendered quite a real hatred um, uh, some of the authorities there, one of them who I was uh, interviewed extensively for this story, one of the senior um, uh, investigators for the RSBP who'd been a, formerly a police officer, said he ne- he'd never encountered any other crime for which people were more adamant about punishment. That they, they, they absolutely, People in England next absolutely hate egg collectors and, and what they do. And it, and it bears talking about, I, I imagine, about the question of, well, so is it dangerous and how dangerous? If, if, if you want, I can sort of talk a bit about that um, and what it's doing. Uh, just because I, so that in that summer, I followed uh, a redback shrike, yeah. who, a, a pair who had appeared for the first time in about 20 years in England, and it had um, created hundreds of people had written in volunteering to guard these nests. And sure enough, they had a 24-hour-day guard on this single red bike, red back, uh, sorry, red back shrike nest uh, in the south of England in Devon, and uh, it was nonetheless, uh, as one of the RSP the investigators I was there with said, you know, well, of course the the, the collectors are still going to come, and sure enough, they did. They're, they were marked down and followed, and they got a visit at their house. And it, they're just addicted to going, despite the fact that this would—I mean, this would be a prized catch. Obviously, this redback shrike, a very rare bird that was had, had not been seen in 20 years in England, um, and their it, their disappearance was blamed on on egg collectors, which is debated whether or not it, it was the truth. But um, collectors will say, inevitably and across the board, they are first of all they consider themselves total environmentalists, they, um, they feel a, a famous sort of uh, quote from collectors that they, they will say is that they're only stealing an egg, a bird's time mm-hmm. because uh, uh, most birds will actually relay their eggs. Um, but that is also disputed, as you might imagine, which it, it, apparently um, for a lot of the more rare birds, which are more prized, they don't always relay their eggs. And in that case, um, you might have uh, a species go for a year, uh, a year without laying, and you also have environmental uh, factors that are contributing. So, in the in the eyes of um, law enforcement and environmentalists, they believe that uh, it's just wrong and illegal to steal eggs, and um, that it can uh, uh, damage the survival of species. And that they they believe, and I think it's true that there are. Uh, cases where that really has uh, been a concern. Um, on the other side, what I found is that, that there's sort of, um, you have these real extremists on both ends. Um, there's now prison time available for uh, egg collectors, and some of these guys are actually doing time, and uh, one of them, even for the first time ever, has been banned for life from going to Scotland, uh, where he was going to collect a lot of his eggs. Uh, so um, it's 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 a bit of a standoff between two different sides of extremists, but one of them at least has the side of the law on them, and that's uh, that's the authorities and the environmentalists. The I think Samuel Johnson attempted to be banned for life for life from going to Scotland, uh, but was unsuccessful. Um, so. Um, <laughs> 
uh, we're talking to Julian Rubenstein. So I fell in love with this article in particular when, um, uh, first of all, we should say that the article describes this thing called Operation Easter. Uh, one of the points that you make is that the, the Great Britain doesn't really have, or England doesn't have, the the equivalent really of the U.S. Uh, game fish and game uh, or or some kind of central agency that does all the policing of this. Instead, what you have is this fusion of law enforcement and 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 in, then especially this chartered private society, this Royal Society for the Production of Birds, uh, which you've referenced before, which has its own investigators. These two uh, especially intrepid uh, investigators and, and enforcers, uh, who I don't know why this isn't a major motion picture already. I don't know, but uh, maybe it will be eventually. But anyway, I fell in love with the article when you described these, one of these two investigators, Mark Thomas, uh, breaks into this guy's house with the police. Uh, this Operation Easter is this fusion, again, of, uh, of traditional law enforcement and these uh, environmentalist, protectionist, uh, private society people. And uh, it's the house of a guy named David Lingham, whose home contained 3,600 eggs. He broke into tears when Thomas and the police arrived in 2004. Thank God you've come, he said. I can't stop. So this is like, you know, one of those murderers who writes something in lipstick, you know, on a on a bathroom mirror or something. Stop me before I kill again. I mean, these guys are so they, they have a fever. They they can't stop doing this, even though they know it's not in their best interests. Yeah. And they, I mean, I think it's true. These are really actually addicts, especially the ones who are left doing it now. And this is actually fascinating is that because of the changes in the law, um, this has actually gone from being a very upper-class activity to a very working-class group of people who are doing it, who are frankly uh, the probably only ones who are willing to risk the penalties that they are going to face if they're caught. And the guy you mentioned there, Lingam, he was actually arrested in a trailer park. He was a boxer living in a trailer park who was also addicted and had these things hidden in compartments all over his home, all over his, his trailer home. And... Um, Similarly, the guy who uh, the, who I'd followed, who ultimately is now banned from Scotland, was didn't fit the original profile and was a real loner um, and unemployed and living off of uh, on the dole. It seemed for potentially for maybe even for some emotional disorder, or or, or it was actually it was it was I was unable to confirm it, although I, I did ultimately speak to him, but. Yes, I mean these are people who are, are are often their lives when these investigators encounter them are clearly completely absorbed and consumed by their pursuit of bird eggs. This is an amazing story, and it um, it, it it will be a major major motion picture someday. It's got everything. Julian Rubenstein, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about a scientific breakthrough that went viral because, you know, you can unring a bell. You can't unring a bell, but you can unboil an egg. I'm going to stay up, watch the eggs of your chickens roll away, roll away. Watch the eggs of your chickens roll away. Betsy Kaplan sat on today's show until it hatched. Our interns are Kelsey Bissell and Julia Pistel. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Big Bird. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff eating unboiled, refried, twice-baked, repoached ostrich omelets, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose looks at the war stories told by Clint Eastwood and Brian Williams. And now, back to Colin. 
before I introduce introduce Gregory Weiss, let me just say that uh, during that whole during the reading of Julian Rubinstein's article and then that whole interview, I was um, hounded by uh, guilt from my childhood because although this really was no threat to the species, but my grandmother lived over um, uh, sort of a it was a market, a little market in Plainville, Connecticut, and uh, the market had a sign. Uh, announcing its existence, which ran right under my grandmother's windows that looked out onto the street. And pigeons nested behind the signs. And my grandmother, for whatever reason, just didn't want them there. And so she and I, it was often my job, would open the windows and take the eggs out of their nest. My grandmother was sort of a birth control pioneer for pigeons. Her whole idea was pretty soon pigeons would have this sense of futility creeping into their lives because their eggs were never there and that they would leave. And it didn't work. I mean, it went on for years. But um, now I feel like maybe I'm, I'm part of that, you know, that whole uh, world of brigands and thieves that, that Julian Rubinstein's talking about. Well, uh, on a much more hopeful uh, level, we're talking to Gregory Weiss, a professor of chemistry at the University of California at Irvine, uh, whose work, as I, did, I said, did, did go viral because maybe it's, it, it has far-reaching significance, but it starts with something that people can kind of wrap their minds around, uh, which is once an egg has been boiled and it, it, its proteins start to stick together, can you effectively unboil an egg? And uh, Gregory Weiss, uh, the answer, according to you, is in a sense, yes, right? You were able to, right. to take a boil. Explain it, what it is that you did. Sure. Uh, thanks, Colin, for your interest in our research. Sure. So we started with really hard-boiled eggs. We boiled them for a good 20 minutes or so just to ensure that they were completely hard and then dissolve. Oh, and I should say at this point, the proteins are all tangled up, which is what hard-boiled eggs are. And then we added this chemical that untangles the, the, the proteins, pull, allows them to drift apart. The problem there, uh, so, so that's been done previously. And the problem is, once the proteins have been untangled, they're still in the wrong shape. So you haven't actually done any unboiling yet. And the next step is the, the sort of trick to the whole process. We used a new device that was just invented a couple of years ago by a collaborator in Australia, a really creative and clever guy named Colin Raston. And his laboratory invented something called a vortex fluid device. This vortex fluid device puts the solution with these egg proteins under high shear forces. So the proteins are like these rubber bands that are getting stretched and then snapped back and stretched and snapped and stretched and snapped until, bam, at one point, they suddenly go back to their original shape. And the key is that in this machine, they're uh, being held away from each other so they don't get a chance to retangle and reform boiled eggs. So uh, let's backtrack just a second here because uh, this was uh, a thing that was very difficult with, for me with my limited apprehension of science to understand. But um, I can't remember who was helpful to me uh, in this. It was either Betsy Kaplan, my producer, or an article, one of the many articles I read about this. But, but somebody cont- uh, described the, the proteins in the original unboiled egg as being folded up kind of like origami. In other words, they had, they had a shape which made them not stick to one another. So if you imagine an, or- an origami – if you unfolded it and it were kind of damp, the, 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 the flatter, um, less shaped pieces uh, of paper would stick together. Is that kind of what's happening when, when we boil an egg? That is. Yes, indeed. So when the proteins are beautifully folded up into little tiny globs that are like an origami sculpture, they're um, held apart from each other and they're completely soluble in water. So they're kind of no- nice and cozy in their liquid confines. 
But then when you boil them, you're starting to tug up on the edges of the origami sculpture, and it falls apart and, uh, you know, straightens out. And the inside that used to be hidden away is now exposed, and that inside is sticky. That's one of the reasons why the proteins form their shapes in the first place. And now the proteins start running into each other, and so that stickiness starts to stick to itself. And uh, it ends up giving you this cross-linked, messy aggregate that uh, looks opaque and solid to us when we look at boiled eggs. Now, you know, obviously this this did attract a lot of excitement. It did kind of go viral on the Internet. But, I mean, uh, I don't think people necessarily understood the implications of this other than that it might be very interesting to go to, to brunch at Greg Weiss's house. But, um, um, but the reality is that, that this... This process may have all kinds of other applications, uh, including, as I understand it, uh, the detection and treatment of cancer. So, so help me understand that one a little bit. Sure, sure. So, Colin, when um, I'm in my laboratory and I'm making proteins for my uh, cancer diagnostics work, my lab and many others do, do experiments like this where we're trying to make these proteins, and oftentimes they come out like boiled eggs. The proteins are jammed onto each other, uh, in the cells that we're using to mass produce them. And rather than coming out beautifully folded like individual origamis, instead they come out as a sort of mass that uh, it looks, actually it looks just like egg white. And so uh, we need ways that allow us to tease apart this type of material and restore it back to its beautiful shapes that it originally started with. And then that gives us a way of, uh, of using those shapes to then develop uh, diagnostics for cancer or study those proteins and understand better how they contribute to cancer. Now, one of the other uh, possible applications here, as I understand it, has to do with, um, with, with I, I don't know, food storage is the wrong way to put it. But, so a lot of food processes um, are doing the kind of thing we're talking about, right? When you turn yeah. uh, milk into cheese, mm-hmm. when you turn flour and yeast into bread, when you turn grape juice into wine, I assume basically, once again, you're kind of refolding or changing the, the, the shape of these proteins. Well, a little, Colin. What's happening with many of those processes, like when you're browning meat or, uh, you know, uh, cooking bread or something like that, uh, the, the chemicals are undergoing a, a chemical transformation and bonding is changing. Boiling an egg, it turns out, is kind of a special case. What's happened there is the proteins have just unfolded, but chemically they haven't changed their bonding patterns. So the connectivity of the molecules is still the same. And so that was relatively easy for us to reverse. But it's going to be really hard to do something like, I don't know, unburn your scones or something like that. That's much, much harder. Um, But in terms of uh, food storage and uh, food applications, I'm really excited about this. Not necessarily because we'd be able to ship boiled eggs to wherever you want and then just, you know, zap them with an unboiler or something like that. That's not at all what we can do. I want to just emphasize that. The, the, The stuff that comes out unboiled at the end of our experiments is like this very dilute egg white in like a saline solution, a little bit of salt water. Um, so, uh, but uh, what I'm excited about, though, is that this gives us a new way to put mechanical energy in and then affect change at a molecular, molecular level. And if you think about it, cooks have been doing this for years. Cooks have been, uh, you know, whipping up uh, egg whites and introducing air into the egg whites. And uh, the air has interesting consequences for things. But um, to actually reach in and do it at a molecular scale 
is, I think, going to open up potentially a new frontier for us to explore. And um, if there's one thing I get excited about, Colin, it's uh, new ways to cook food. It's uh, new flavors to taste and things like that. So that's what I'm thrilled about. It, it seems as though, though, this all has to start as pure research, uh, that you actually have to be in an environment where you can ask a much more fundamental question, one whose, whose future applications may be there, maybe not there, may be obvious, may be less obvious. So, but it sounds like you started with a much more general pure science question. Oh, yes. No, you're absolutely right, Colin. I couldn't agree more. It is, uh, this started as sort of a blue sky thing that I thought would be just neat to try. I was uh, visiting Australia, sitting in the office of Colin Raston, and we looked at each other. We realized, wow, we have almost nothing to talk about. We're uh, from two totally opposite fields. Uh, we don't uh, really collaborate with each other all that often, or I don't collaborate in those fields very often. The fields don't usually mix. But then we started talking about what we do in our own fields, and I realized that this new device that he had invented for a totally different purpose might solve this problem that I have in my own laboratory. So we just thought it would be a fun thing to try. Well, Greg and, Weiss, this has been fascinating to talk to you about, and, and I, I, we, we will stay in touch, and we will watch, and we will see the future applications. I can virtually guarantee you that there's a bar in Brooklyn that wants to serve you know, your reconstituted egg whites and saline <laughs> solution in a test tube with vodka, so um, it's just a matter of finding the right place. Thank you so much for joining You're us today. That would be really cool. I'll meet you in that bar in Brooklyn. All right. Sounds like a, sounds like a date. All right. So uh, I want to thank especially Betsy Kaplan for um, thinking up this whole thing and finding all these amazing guests and, uh, and asking all these terrific questions. Because when we started this thing out, believe me, I didn't know about the secret underworld of egg collectors. I didn't know about Greg Weiss and his science. I didn't know about uh, any of this. All I knew was that I liked to cook duck eggs. Um, we will be back tomorrow with the nose. Uh, we have James Hanley. We have Rand Cooper. We have uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Uh, and we'll be having, we all went to see American Sniper this week, but that's kind of turned into a conversation uh, also about memory and history. Uh, Brian Williams has kind of had a little bit of a bad week uh, telling a war story, story of being a war correspondent that turned out to be kind of not true. But that's got us all talking among ourselves about how history gets reshaped. Maybe especially the history of war. Things come out a lot more exciting or heroic than they started out. So anyway, come back for that, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll hatch into chicks and grow up into hens. Those hands will start laying more eggs again. Eggs for your souffles and mayonnaise. But don't you think it's time they got some praise? Let's hear it for eggs. For eggs. Three cheers for eggs. Rumi, I gotta tell you, living with you, it's like I'm walking on eggshells all the time. That's because you're stepping on my Fabergé collection. So, does this mean we're making omelets for breakfast? Mm.